0: Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. Today we're going to Village Dreaming Farm and Auto Cooking School. Mara and Ralph live on about 15 acres just outside of Dalesford which is about a 30-minute drive south of where I am in Castlemaine. They've been there since 2015 and in that time have transformed the empty paddocks of former grazing land into a small farm that follows regenerative and permaculture principles with a kitchen garden, orchards and wetlands. Ralph works in water-sensitive urban design and Mara teaches all sorts of things from their beautiful farm kitchen. It's a large room with a wall of windows looking out over their vegetable garden and a huge wooden table at the centre designed to accommodate her classes. Mara teaches cooking inspired by her Italian heritage as well as other home crafts like soap making, preserving, fermenting and bread making, just to name a few. She invites other teachers into her space to share their skills. People like Ilka Wyatt who've been a guest on this show before talking about sustainable textiles and clothing. Ralph and Mara are both working to regenerate the land they are on and to create biodiversity and wild spaces. And I might use Mara's words from her website to do this acknowledgement of country. We live on the lands of the Dja people who nurtured and cared for country for 65,000 years and who continue to do so through the use of fire and dreamtime rituals, they shaped country and created one of the most beautiful continents on earth. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Salt salt. Salt of the earth. Salt. Salt. Salt salt, salt, salt. salt,
1: salt. Grass. Grass grass. Grass Crisp. Grassroots. Grassroots. Grass, grass, salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass.
0: Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So the day I went out to the farm, Mara was teaching a soap making class. I had my teenage nephew Oliver with me, who you might remember came with me to a student strike in the episode last season called The Youth Are Rising. He was spending the entire week with me as a work experience student, and this was our first day together. We wandered their property, including their kitchen garden. We got honked at by their geese, who had a fair bit to say to us. We sat in on the class, which included a distilling process, which involved a beautiful copper contraption that looked straight out of some steampunk fantasy.
1: Can you see all the beautiful um, lavender sort of dust? Mm. Dust. (laughs) Yes, you'll all be falling asleep within a couple of hours' time. But I've put that in and I really want to squash it down. The more lavender I can get in here, the more lavender oil I can get from it.
0: We recorded conversations with both Mara and Ralph in a little communal kitchen space they have for woofers and farm stay workers. I started with Mara as she had to go and prepare for the class. Then we sat with Ralph to talk about the wetlands they've built. I asked Mara why she wanted to build a place like this.
1: Yeah, for me, I love being in community, but I also really need to be home a lot. Like I have got a home personality. So it essentially is feeding into the fact that I need to be home a lot, but I also need to be around people a lot yeah. and I need people in my life. So how do I do those two things? I bring community to me as often as possible and I share the things I love doing when I'm at home. That's how this place has come about and as a result of also community work I've done in the past, working for Ceres Environment Park as a 20 year old, working for local government, doing education programs around climate change. So it's bringing all those experiences and then sharing them in this place. I grew up first nine years in Italy Then my family came out to Australia in 1981, into Ballarat, where it was very quiet. There's like no street life whatsoever. Then went to Melbourne for uni. It's like, yes, street life, cafes, music, art, culture. I'm sure there was plenty of Ballarat somewhere, but it was just harder to find. And Ballarat's definitely changed now. And then buying our first house, tiny little commission house in Reservoir, Melbourne, and starting to play with that for the first time, being able to plant things and not have to have them pulled out by the Mm -hmm. next renters or by the fact that you have to leave home. And then taking all those learnings from
0: that house to this place. So let's go back to you as a nine-year-old coming from Italy. Did you know any English? No, no, not at all. But I don't remember
1: not knowing any English. Mm. I really feel like I was always able to understand. And I think that has a lot to do with kindness. I don't remember any feelings of being made to feel uncomfortable for not knowing language. And and I had two amazing teachers who just made me feel really good. So as a result, I always feel like I could speak.
0: And when you moved to Melbourne to go to uni, what were you studying? I did a Bachelor of Social Science in
1: Environment at RMIT and I loved
0: it. Loved and what it made so you much. want to study that?
1: My grandmother was a conservationist in her way, but in I think Italy. by in Italy, but d- by default. I mean, yeah. who isn't a conservation after you've gone through a world war and you've raised three children on a single income as a single parent?
0: And so you worked at Ceres for a while. It's called uh, Ceres after the. Greek goddess of agriculture
1: and it's an environment park that was established almost 30 years ago on an old rubbish dump. And so the community, some amazing, God, community is amazing or individuals are extraordinary. They come along some individuals came along and went can we take this space and use it for a community park? And luckily Brunswick Council said yes and off they went and it's still there and this was, you know, they took it over perhaps in the 70s. I've kind of lost track of how long they've been there but a lot of people will know it in Melbourne. It's a yeah. very welcoming,
0: very beautiful And it's quite space. inner city. Very really. inner it's city. like It's one of the, like you got yes. the CBD of Melbourne and then that's one of the first suburbs outside of that. Yes. Which... I mean, I guess when it was established, wasn't cool. It wasn't the cool Brunswick that we know now. Yes, I, I think if considering that was a rubbish dump, mm-hmm. it would not have been cool to live near a
1: rubbish dump. <laughs> but now that it's been turned into a yeah. community park with market gardens and all the bits and cafes and so on and the bike shed, I love the bike shed. Yeah. Um,
2: Massive bicycle then, repair. Yes, shop. now yeah. it's
0: all of a sudden a really special place.
2: Yeah.
0: All right, so you spent some time working at Ceres and you had a little house near there where you started to play with the idea of growing things. What made you take this leap to out here? Like, and how, maybe tell us how big this property is and how you found it. And- We're
1: well, on 15 acres on judge of land and my partner, took the leap. He said he really wanted to move to the country. He had said it a while ago. I wasn't ready. I love my job. In a city, he liked his job. Commuting was not going to happen. But then 13 years later, it was the right time because I'd been working in an office right through my 20s and early 30s. And I'd come to the end. What was I going to do? Because I'd come to the end of the office job. I was like, ah. but it was perfect timing that Ralph said again, can we move to the country? And I thought, yes, this is the perfect time because I don't know what I'm going to do here. And so we moved here and I just, realized slowly after buying this land that I could bring all the things I had loved all through my time in Melbourne and just bring them here and invite people here and that's what I've done in setting up village dreaming a little
0: a cooking school with a range of workshops artisanal workshops yeah and so you do soap making obviously and what are some of the other things you teach you yeah so i teach soap making because my neighbor had lard i was like
1: lard i can make soap with lard this is fantastic i teach wild edible fungi classes how to identify the 10 wild edibles in this area because thanks to people like alison pulio and others who all introduced me to wild edible fungi in the area i just went oh this this really takes me back to my roots i really love that Mm -hmm. and then uh, we teach pasta making classes and sourdough bread Baking classes, and we invite artists like Ilka to come and do the braided rag rugs. And we're doing hopefully also another weave. Natural what is it? Natural dyeing. Thank you for helping me remember the classes. Natural
0: dyeing. I saw that shop. one advertised, and I've wanted to do that with Ilka for a while. I'm like, oh, maybe I can.
1: Come it's I I mean, of course, when you invite someone to come and do a class, you can. I. I'm going to sound over-enthusiastic, but it's an amazing class because it's so much happening in that class. So, yeah, lots – and I'm always trying to introduce a new class, but it has to come from me. The classes it has to come from discovering something and
0: thinking, oh, my gosh, I would love to do that, and therefore, there, let's share it with other people. That's quite interesting because that's similar to to how I choose what episodes I do on the podcast. I'm like, what do I really want to know about? Who do I want to talk to to find out, you know? And so I'm actually interested in, I think we were emailing before we got together to do this interview and there's a conflict for me in like this perfect dream world, this village dreaming that you've got, (laughs) which seems so idyllic and, and people love it. But I think when people look at The climate crisis and their own lives, which is full of nitty gritty and wear and tear and how tired they are and how much they have to work and looking after kids or looking after, you know, who else is in their life and themselves. and You know, a lot of people are like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't even begin to aspire to that. And sometimes it feels like the messaging is to be truly sustainable. You have to do everything yourself, ride a bike everywhere and you have to make your own soap. That is not my messaging, (laughs) absolutely not. I mean, it's
1: so interesting growing up and going, the messaging is so much more complex than any one statement. The blueprint for sustainability, is going to be so big so layered so profound in trying to work out we haven't found it yet I don't know what it is actually if you'd ask me this question in my 20s I keep realizing how much I might have had this really perfect answer because that's what your I think your 20s are about to some extent the idealism it's the oh it's this idea that you really do have a solution for everything and it's the best time best time (laughs) you feel so good you know (laughs) I've got an answer for everything but now I go oh it's so much more complex you know i'm raising pigs on property in my 20s i wouldn't have thought to do that because there's a lot of statistics that say raising animals on on pasture regardless whether it's regenerative or not it's not how we should do things my mind's trying to come around to that in my 20s i probably would have agreed with that now i'm not so sure i'm a bit confused about that I don't think making everything yourself first is absolutely not possible. You wouldn't want it on yourself. You'd have no time for community or friendships or your partner or anyone else. Like you'd just be working. I already work seven days a week. There's no such thing as an idealistic life. Every life has complexity, every single one. And there's so many inefficiencies actually with doing it yourself. So in some ways, if I had to be critical of that, I would say it's actually very inefficient when you're just making things for yourself. We've never really done that that much. We've got this this idea that perhaps at some stage we made everything ourselves, but we always worked as a community is how I see it. We always lived in a village. Somebody, we always lived in the village. Someone did the cows and someone did the sheep. And, you know, we all share. We have to. Otherwise, we literally have to work 24 hours a day. And when we're doing that now. We mm. are sharing, I think it's such a difficult discussion to have because what does sustainability look like? It definitely looks like less consumerism. It definitely, I think in my, if I have to make some broad statements, it's things that biodegrade. It's, It's no waste, it's biomimicry. It's how do we become more like nature? We are nature, we come from nature, but we end up producing all these things that can't be brought Back, back immersed nature. into nature yeah. and create all these problems for us
0: yeah and so how do we become more nature yeah you know i love that yeah that and that's a question and i think holding the question means that you've got curiosity and you then start exploring lots of different ways to do it and there's a diversity of ways of doing things like this and I think that that idealism—I had it too in my twenties—of like there's a right way, and we just have to find it. And if we find it, then that'll be the right way.
1: Or just—and everyone
0: needs to do the same thing. And or more like, that I thought I had all the
1: answers, but yeah. now I'm much more aware. I mean, it's such a typical journey. I think it's like yeah. <laughs> such a you know in your twenties, like yeah, I've got all the answers the in your forties, yeah. Or it's, it's it's also so aspirational. and It's got so much energy that space. It's a really mm. important space, and I always get scared that you might lose that through some of the big things that are happening in the world now then but it's such an important phase but yes a feeling that you really had I had clear answers well now I'm a little bit not quite so clear it's every conversation every point needs to be totally
0: discussed to make sense of it and how it really works and I think also the more you learn about other human beings and the world the more you realize that there's so much difference in people and people have really different requirements and you just need to actually accommodate that like not everyone can do that ideal life or you know live that way and and it's only ideal also if you've chosen it.
1: So if yeah. I impose my life on someone else and suggest to them that they should quit being a doctor or, or a, I don't know, a scientist because they should be making – I mean, no. No yeah. way. That's a we crazy need them idea. All.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. The soap banker still needs a doctor every now and then. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so what was it like when you first moved out here? It looks like you've built a lot of very beautiful buildings. You've got this cluster of buildings and you now also have like little eco housing that people can come and stay at.
1: Yes and what I mean it's actually it's a farm stay I don't want to give the wrong stay. impression okay. yeah yes sure it's more, people come and stay either because they're doing classes or because they're coming up for the weekend and we we started with 15 acres with not a single tree on the property and there was a paddock for grazing so for cattle grazing and we've built a cluster of little buildings our house the farm stay and the shed, which the, the farm stay and the house are both built from straw, because we wanted to use a method called light earth. We've always wanted to build with straw, and every single tree and plant you see here was planted by us in the last seven years. And I still have so much more planting to do. I really want this space to be very, very biodiverse, and as treescaped as possible so that's why we've established the wetland wasn't here we built that that was our very first project and we call it a wetland and ralph will talk more about this because we really wanted to have a lot of aquatic plants across the perimeter so there's yeah. a design element that i'll let ralph talk about and we've got fruit orchards and berry orchards we've got lots of native trees on the boundaries and around the wetland and olive orchard on the perimeter i guess the dream is to grow as much as we can how far
0: can we go before we get too tired yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. and are you finding the classes I know we've just come out of a pandemic and that's a hugely challenging time for anyone who does anything that requires people to be in a room together yes (laughs) but are you finding that people are excited about the classes and and are keen to learn because some of these are crafts that you know Your grandmother in Italy, she would have known how to do this stuff. And maybe she got together with her friends once a month or once every six months and did a soap making session. They made huge batches of soap and that got them all through. And I think in our solitary, polarised little houses where we have our nuclear families and we can buy everything, a lot of us have never learnt how to do this stuff that our grandmothers knew how to do. Yes, I think... Definitely people want to reconnect with the making part
1: of our history and so a lot of people that come here want to learn to make things from scratch and realise that they've inherited perhaps material wealth but they haven't inherited a cultural wealth sometimes there's been a vacuum and they've missed out on that and so they want to know the stories they want to know the recipes they want to know how how things come about and there is enthusiasm for that. I'm lucky also I'm part of the Ballarat Heritage Festival this weekend, which has meant being part of a broader program is very valuable because a lot of people get to find out about the classes here. But yeah, I think f- there was definitely a very big, quiet period where I thought, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just started, and this is not fair. <laughs> but now it seems, it's, look, it, it changes all the time. It's, it'll be, because I'm only so new, I still can't see patterns, what the patterns are. But right now I'm feeling very high because the classes are full. What I want to do is create permission for people to live a bit differently because some people do seem to need permission to do that. Oh, my gosh, if what was valued, and I've been in circles like this where what is valued is not simplicity, it's not having less, it is ha- it is having more, it is having amazing, expensive things or that they are your identity where things that are expensive become your identity and perhaps what are the branding like that becomes your identity if you're in circles where that's happening a lot and where that's the voice is very loud because then you do very much feel like you need to consume a lot in order to have worth and it's wonderful to get people here who have it either snap out of that or have a moment where they realize it's not because of their coming here it's more that they're on that journey and they come here and then they want to introduce this change to the whole family and they come to a class and they feel they're supported by someone else who's also saying, your intrinsic you, your kindness, your generosity, your sharing, that is the most valuable thing and everything else is icing or extra and some things are also not necessary at all, like just trying to, Yes, just going back to give people permission not to feel that their self worth is based on a brand. That is really demoralizing and never makes you feel like you have any self worth at all because, of course, then you have to keep up with the brands as well. And there's always a new thing coming and there's out. There's always you a new thing. And yeah. there's definitely pockets in the world that are like that. Yeah. Where I just go, wow, that would be really, really hard mm. to be. Because it also means you have to earn a lot of money and you have to work a lot like I think I've worked two or three days a week at the maximum I've ever worked in my life as in, I've always worked part-time because I've except chosen. for now when you said
0: you work seven days a now week. now I <laughs> do but I don't
1: get paid for seven <laughs> days a week I don't I don't even think of it as work because why don't I think of it partly because it's just because I get to do everything I want to do and I get So much autonomy over, No, but what I mean is paid work. I've never had to work a lot in order to make sure I've got all the newest things that will allow me to be accepted by my community because I've always been drawn to communities who love you and care for you not because of what you're wearing but there are some communities where I think that seems to happen I I, I remember meeting a woman saying she had to move to Dalesford because the area she was in she felt she had to dress up to the max wear makeup to the max and it was stressing her out she moved to Dalesford and said though that she wasn't sure Dalesford was quite the right fit because she felt it was a bit too down to earth here she was just trying (laughs) trying to find the right place I was like oh my gosh that sounds complicated yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah. So kind of giving people permission to accept and embrace a different way of being that's not what we're sold. I love that point about self-worth and and where you find your self-worth and your sense of worthiness and acceptance. Yeah.
1: Yes. Because again, sometimes now I am in a bit of a bubble where I do hang out with a lot of people who perhaps don't model their self-worth on whether they've wearing certain makeup or shave their legs or have their eyebrows perfect but then occasionally i get a reminder that that exists and one woman who was saying you know whenever she saw advertising for for the races it would say are you cup ready have you had your eyebrows done have you had your legs done it was like listing all these things that a woman needed to do in order to be worthy to attend the melbourne cup and and she wrote about that saying one day finally i snapped and realized I am worthy without these things. And it's good to
0: be reminded of what's happening outside. When I moved to Castlemaine, I think I had a similar dynamic where I moved and I really felt like I needed that change. And I found a community that had values that I valued and and that showed me better ways of being. And I'm, I'm like so appreciative of having been amongst all of that and learning. And then I kind of, it's easy then you get in that bubble and you forget that how many people are still trapped in that like hamster wheel of trying to keep up and trying to sort of find their worth by impressing other people with things that are endlessly demanding, endlessly
1: and demanding, <laughs> and also I'm not trying to make a judgment on those things. No. At the same time, I also realize I'm always concerned with conversations. How quickly a conversation can be sim- sounds so simple, like yeah, a judgment. I'm totally. just, yeah, but yeah. if you're not choosing those things at all, and yeah. you feel they're an imposition, yeah. then. Here's a place where you can opt out, yeah. basically, of those of those things that make make you feel like you're not worthy unless you have the latest clothes, or the latest makeup, or the latest look, or the latest yeah. car, or the latest and car, the latest car or whatever, phone, whatever it is, the latest, or the latest phone. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. All that stuff. Mm. I'm interested in that idea you were talking about. That idea that, in some ways, it was easier for you to be sustainable living in the city, like that country city kind of dichotomy where people feel like they can live this wholesome life out in the country but actually there's huge amazing beautiful global urban sustainability movements and I haven't really covered that because I'm covering a small town. I feel sometimes people
1: try and create this really perfect divide between the urban environment and little country towns and suggest that country towns are inherently more sustainable than urban environments. Again I think it's it's just not possible to make those comments in some ways because in, in some ways it's more energy-intensive being here. We've got we're up to three cars now on this property. I, I would have been mortified once upon a time knowing that I had three cars. But living out of town, not having a bike um, lane from here to town means that we've now a three-car family, one for me so I can do it, one for Ralph so my partner can access work and one for my 18-year-old daughter in melbourne i would have been cycling everywhere and if i got a bit tired i would just put the electric motor that i have on now and be cycling with an electric motor but i i could get around with public transport that's a big one because transport is a huge issue so we burn a lot of fossil fuels on transport so in those ways and i mean this particular property also takes more just because it's a bigger property in itself so when you do fencing you do a lot of fencing it's not just a little bit of fencing every project has a lot of materials and that's what i mean by it's not necessarily a simple equation black and white equation yeah. it's just not you'd have to look at it case by case <laughs> <laughs> to really be able to make a comment yeah. on that yeah. and also you can have some farming properties or some agricultural property or rural properties where there's barely a tree yeah and you might oh, have you know an urban environment where there's lots of trees so there's so many aspects that can be teased apart
0: yeah and what else would you like to do out here if you were to grow and and realize a full vision of what this place could be what would you like it to be well my full (laughs) my complete
1: vision is really to be even more
0: productive in the
1: vegetable front actually that's where it ends that's the (laughs) extent of my vision I just would love we grow quite a lot but nowhere near as much as I could be growing I would love not to need to buy almost almost any vegetables from town i'm not there yet the vision is so basic which just someone else coming to live with us for two days a week where they contribute to vegetable growing two days a week in exchange for free rent but i haven't built the extra little building required one more building so they would live here full they would time. live here full time for free <sighs> they would access... i know people who would do that for I, know, sure. I just i know they're out <laughs> there i just need to provide them with accommodation that yeah. is genuinely allows them to live their own life a full yeah. life of their own and contribute 16 hours i've got mm-hmm. it all mapped out i just need the building and i'm not there yet but i can't wait because i would again i want to be able to say as much as possible this was growing here and this was grown here that yeah. was grown here so yeah. yeah we've got beautiful soil we're on volcanic soil and i'd like to make better use of it
0: After Mara left to go and greet her students and start the class, we sat down with Ralph and talked with him about how the two of them met, and it involves a story that also refers to someone you might recognise from a previous Saltgrass episode, and I feel like there's a lot of that in this episode, but John Reed is mentioned in this story of how they met, and I'm hoping you remember him from the Red Beard Bakery episode from a couple of seasons back. And then we also talk about the wetlands that they've built on the property and what makes a wetland different to a dam.
2: So Mara and I met back in Melbourne and we met through a connection. I was working at a place called Natural Tucker Bakery, a sourdough bakery. And she had a housemate. You didn't work with John Reed, did you? I worked briefly with John Reed. (laughs) Actually, John worked at the bagelry where this other guy, Mark, worked and he lived with Mara. So there's a few overlapping connections. But Mark and I, for a few weekends, sort of did this swap over where he would drop off some extra bagels at the end of the day and I would drop off leftover bread at his house because often it would end up in the bin or sometimes people picked it up but that's how Mara and I first met and then we interacted a little bit at what were they called those uh, those cycle protests through the streets oh. um, critical mass
0: critical mass that's I used to do a few of them. did yeah. you ever do a naked
2: critical mass <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's sort of how we overlapped and then we overlapped a few more times and then the, the way we actually got together was again a housemate sort of thing where a housemaid was in a different house, and a person that was doing the course with her was living with me, and she sometimes came over, and anyway, there was a bit of overlap, and eventually we. Got together so actually that's the other overlap in this the house that I was living in another housemate she worked for Damien Cook and Brendan Condon and then Mara and I did a summer there so Brendan and Damien set up a revegetation company and mainly around wetland restoration not so much restoring old wetlands which is probably what they would have preferred to be doing but this was towards the end of the 90s start of 2000s where Melbourne Water started to push wetlands for water quality improvement for housing developments and so there was a lot of Housing development happening at the edge of Melbourne still is, and a lot of those developments put in wetlands or nowadays rain gardens or biofiltration systems as well. And they saw a niche, I think. Damien had taught himself how to be an ecologist over the years and, and was very interested in wetlands and, and Brendan probably saw more business opportunity and was interested in that.
0: So you started by volunteering for a summer? Was that a volunteer uh, no, job? No, it, it
2: was paid. Yeah. And it, what were you doing? So we were basically putting plants in the ground. So the wetland would be built by civil contractors and Damien and Brendan's part of the business was they would go seed collecting, propagate the plants and then put them in into these jobs. And it was massive planting, so we're often talking 10,000, 100,000 sort of plants. So it was big jobs, and you'd be there for a week or two at any one site. But they were at the edge of the city, so often Mara and I would get on a train at 5am to to get somewhere by 7am, and back then we didn't drive as much, so we took a a train to the edge of the suburban trail line and then rode for another half an hour or something. So we often rode our bikes to the site which was good, but it does wear you out a bit. And we did do it just for the summer. And then I kept working there and then bought a car and started doing lots of other things in terms of delivering plants or organising the jobs, working in the nursery. Because at the start, it was just a summer gig because wetland plants only really grow over summer. So ideally, you put them in spring, spring, summer. And then by autumn, winter, if you put them in, they'd just sit there fairly dormant. So it's, it's more ideal to do it in the summer period. So they often had maybe 20 people over summer and then back down to half a dozen or less people over winter and then it grew again over summer and often it went that way until the business got big enough and we started diversifying in terms of the jobs. But that got us quite interested in wetlands and biodiversity and rear edge in general. So by the time we were ready to move here, we definitely thought if there's an opportunity, we should create a wetland and... and we also, in terms of looking for sites, there was a few that we uh, looked at, quite a few. Some had trees already there that you'd actually have to chop down. Like in Trentham, there's a great block, but it was full of trees and we'd have to actually clear some space to... To to make a wetland. To make, well, probably couldn't do a wetland there, but even to put a house on there. So the main reason we liked this property is that it was basically a grass paddock and so we could add trees to it and... There was opportunity also in terms of the gradient of the land to to insert a, a dam or wetland into
0: it. How long have you been working on building the wetland that you've got here?
2: So most of it gets done in that first little bit. So to build a road into where we wanted the house block, we had to move, there was a bit of a dip so it created a great opportunity to create a a dam wall as well as the road as well as bringing some material up to create the pad for the building. That was done by a a, a bigger civil contractor that just used a a bulldozer mainly to to move uh, the soil back and forth and to push it to the side and create the depth for for the wetland. We did do a survey initially and and worked out that there's definitely a a little bit of a a, a valley there. And if we built up the wall, then that would create an area that water would be trapped. And the earthworkers' theory was that from the volcano up the hill, water would run down to here. Now it doesn't quite work that way because there's roads and other dams in the way. But over these wet winters, water does get to that low point even just from our, our paddock.
0: And so what's the difference between a wetland and a dam?
2: yeah so ours is quite broad and that the edges are, are quite shallow so it takes a long time to get into depth whereas a normal dam you'd probably want to build it as deep as possible with steep sides so you you maximize your storage and
0: minimize evaporation
2: yes actually yes and that's been one of the challenges with our wetland when we first moved here seven or eight years ago the first few years were fairly dry so there's a point where the water flows out with a pipe under the road and that should be where the water sits as a normal top water level so you plant down or up from that point but those first few summers it didn't get there so those first few summers plants struggled it's only the last few years that we've had wet winters and then it's kept the water level pretty good over summer when the plants can really spread out and grow that that's happened so in that first year is when you do most you do the earthworks they put some topsoil back rather than just leaving it as clay which again and often dams are quite clayy because they probably don't want plants to grow
0: it also acts as the seal isn't it so the water can't leak out through the ground yeah you want clay that's
2: that's good but you want some topsoil put back in if you want to put put plants in so they did that and then we bought and harvested some plants from the local area and planted them, and as I said, it's it's taken a quite three or four years for it to really fill out, and it's interesting to watch it at times, particularly the aquatic plants, the ones that just live in the water, and you just see the tips of their leaves above the water. They come and go, different species come and go. And even Damien rang me this year. Have you got this species in your dam he wanted to show people as part of an ecology course and he just couldn't find it anywhere. We didn't have it either. And so some years we have lake eelgrass and other years we have pondweed and it just comes and goes. We're you're not right. we're so the
0: plant has its own multi-year cycle. It's well, not like you're planting it and I asked it out. Damien
2: about that. Whether there is whether he understands that pattern and, and I don't think they're really sure as to to why things come and go like that. But he has told me in the past that a lot of these plants have seeds that can survive for a really long time. So if the water conditions aren't favorable that year, then two, three, four, ten, 10, or even you know much longer, they'll, they'll sit there dormant and then come back up.
0: I love that. Cool. And so what's the ecological value of something like a
2: wetland? Because it's quite a bit of effort and it's obviously there's a bit, some maintenance. Yeah, so the maintenance isn't too bad. We just keep some plants out of it that, that we don't like. It certainly attracts birds, herons, ducks, and they're attracted by the frogs and the the other critters that are around there. So it's mainly an ecosystem, biodiversity, and and knowing that Australia did have quite a lot more wetlands, Western Victoria had lots of wetlands all over the place that have been filled or moved or or drained over the years. So it's, it's about trying to recreate or give back to the country.
0: And are there some species that require multiple wetlands and they just hop between them through different seasons or?
2: Uh, It is, yes. So that tapestry um, or connectivity, particularly for things like herons and and swans and stuff is important. So there are quite a number of wetlands just around our, our area and we'll have particularly something like the swans will come and go and they, they've been here a couple of seasons, but we haven't seen them for a little while. Are they black swans? Black swans, yes. Yeah. So they would go where the food is and where they can create a, a nest and feel safe. they are probably here for the first couple of years. Now that we've got Haru, the dog, they probably don't want to be here because he does sort of swim after the ducks, but he can't get anywhere near like them. like a water dog. Like... Yeah, he does like swimming, yeah. yes. <laughs> so unless you fence it off for, from him, which we have considered, but over the years, it, 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 he hasn't really caught anything that, that we're aware of. Yeah. Um, but it is something that maybe consider. And But we have fenced off the, the back part of the wetland that if we ever have uh, livestock, or we, ha- we have pigs, but if we have um, things like uh, cow or sheep, the other important thing about the difference between a dam and a wetland is not letting livestock drink out of it directly. You might pump it to a trough because otherwise they damage the edge quite a lot in terms of that access and the, the pugging of the soil and stuff.
0: Yeah, sure. And a ruse and things, quite common, are they allowed yes. in? Yes. <laughs>
2: well, yeah, they go into. I assume they drink some water from there, but yeah. you do see them around yeah. that area, yep.
0: Nice, and I guess that there'd be an abundance of plants for them as well that they'd enjoy.
2: Well, they, they like eating grass a lot, so they, they're often in the open paddock and they probably only go down the wetland for for the actual drink. From my understanding, they actually like the new low-grown grass, so often you'll see oh, them yeah. in the mown part of the paddock and not the long grass <laughs> part of the paddock. Given that it was just a bare paddock when you first bought it,
0: what are some of the other things you're doing what's the long-term plan for the property
2: so we've got plantings around the edge of the property for wind protection and they're indigenous trees and shrubs. and we are introducing some throughout the paddock to give more shade to any animal that we have and again our site's quite windy so the more wind protection we can provide the better and in terms of the wetland I I think we're happy with the footprint because we have realized our catchment's not big we did talk to the council about perhaps taking some water from from the road but they thought the, the the levels wouldn't work so that would give us a bunch more water to keep it fuller for longer but at present it's probably big enough for the catchment that it's got.
0: Did you have to consult council or get permits to put a wetland in on the property?
2: Yeah, so I guess it's considered a dam. Golden Murray Water in our area controls the the waterways and dams and and things like groundwater. So we did need to uh, ask permission from them. Anything less than two megalitres they don't really object to, larger they do. So you can get a, a plan drawn up by some landscape architects or even civil designers. We didn't bother with that because we... We have some experience ourselves, but also we used a earthwork contractor from Castlemaine. He's into keyline ploughing and knows those sort of permaculture principles. So he understood what we were trying to do and therefore could do those subtle grades. But the other thing you need to do for design is then do some geotech testing, which... Between that and and the design and the geotech testing to see how far the rocks down, you're spending five to ten thousand on a design before you build anything, and in the end that probably cost us five thousand in terms of earthworks. And then we we hit rock. So in the in the area that we were going to have, have the deepest down near the road, is actually probably the shallowest, and a little bit further away we could we could go a bit further because there was deeper soil. So you can spend some money on design if you're not comfortable, or just get a good earthworker in that that understands what you're trying to do and then adjust the design accordingly and without doing all that testing
0: and have you had any species arrive and enjoy your wetland that you are surprised by or happy to
2: see well so i was talking before about the submerged species they're quite hard to harvest and get established so you just hope that they come and they often just do come in with the birds so yes yeah, right. that those species have been good we didn't bring any frogs in but they arrive either. On the plants that you bring, or they make their way from other, like on a wet day like today, they'll particularly at night they they go move through the landscape. Yeah, Life. they're not just a wetted to a, a water body. If it's moist enough, they can go through the grass and yeah. and get to your your place. So we don't have anything like a growling grass frog that's endangered, but we do have banjo frogs and common froglets and other things that have come along, yeah. In general, we're, I guess we're broadly following a regenerative agriculture-type principles, permaculture principles, and bringing back nature as much as we can.
0: So there you go, that was Ralph, and before him we heard from Mara, talking about their property near Dalesford in central Victoria called Village Dreaming, where they run classes and have built a wetland and are regenerating the land and building habitat. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Links and notes about the show are on the episode page on the website and in the podcast app, including, of course, the Village Dreaming website, which I do recommend you go and have a look at. It's a beautiful website. Don't forget, you can get your Saltgrass ethical t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, posters and more. There are new designs all the time. We even have puzzles which make great presents, if I do say so myself. For those of you listening on the radio, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on all the socials and you can subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program was made possible with support from MaineFM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt. Salt. Salt of the earth. Salt. 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 Grassroots.
1: Grassroots. 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 Grassroots.
0: Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.